nothing would make me happier than to think that there's like Kubrick is showing the last dragon to like his cast of full metal jacket, like on a Saturday night. That would be fucking amazing. Like, like sitting on the set of full metal jacket, like in all the rubble and the debris. And he's going like, Ooh, watch this part with, with, with Bruce Leroy. It's great. Welcome to Horror Movie Survival Guide, Disco Citizens, the podcast where gore hounds and best friends, Terry Gamble and Julia Marchesi, break down a different horror movie each week, exploring a multitude of genres, sub-genres, and sub-sub-genres, classic and cult, international and underground flicks alike, determining which films are the goriest, and offering up Horror Movie Survival Guide tips to, to help, help you, you stay alive. Hey, Disco Citizens, welcome to Horror Movie Survival Guide. I am Julia. And I'm Terry. Julia, holy goodness, this is going to be a show today because this is going to be a great show today. I am uh, over the moon excited. Can you please tell us who we have here today? We do. We have uh, one of the nicest guys in Hollywood. We have Joe Lynch today, who is, as you know him, an American film and music theater director, film producer, cinematographer, actor, you know him from such movies, Wrong Turn 2, and Everly, and Point Blank, and Mayhem, and his new movie, Suitable Flesh. We are so excited. Joe, hello. Hello. Lynch. Yes! Oh my god, I am so excited. This movie is don't, bonkers. Don't blow your wad. Don't blow your wad just yet. We still have oh, a lot to go. We have a lot to we'll cover. We'll make it tantric, baby. We will make it tantric, Horny Joe. Like, this is for all of us. I'm so excited. Um, so, yeah, yeah, let's get into so it. So, Joe, I don't know if you know, uh, we were just be- both on KingCast on the same week. Um, my episode was like they they pitched at the end of your episode. I just wanted to say because I loved being on the King Cast and being on there same week as you made me so incredibly happy. Oh, me too. Oh yeah, we double teamed them. It was like a fucking spit roast. Yes, this is this is a dream I've had with this. You know, this whole thing. Um, and also oddly, that movie that Stephen King uh, movie that I adapted, I was talking about on there. The characters' main names are Edward and Elizabeth, which are the same in your movie. Get out of here. Oh, by the way, congratulations. I just saw the teaser. Thank you very much. Yes, I know what you need. Such a great film. She just won another award this last week, too, for another film festival. So very, very proud. Terry, stop. Everybody's just just gotten, gotten all the accolades. And, you know, I'm jealous because it is my life's goal to do a Stephen King adaptation. I've been trying for years. And I haven't had that opportunity yet. Um, hopefully, it, like knock on wood, that might happen sooner than we think. Not to give too much away. We'll see what happens. But uh, but yeah, when I saw that you were doing it, I'm like, son of a bitch. God damn it, Julia. <laughs> <laughs> Who would have thought, Julia? Have thought. You're making Joe Lynch jealous <laughs> today. Look at that. I love this for you. Okay, well, this is, this is thank amazing. you. This is not about me, though. This show is about Joe. So let's get into Joe. Let's- I know, but how cool is that, though? I'm sorry. I'm going to celebrate that moment. Yeah, yeah. R- rub it in. Rub it in. Yeah, rub it in. <laughs> sorry, Joe. Sorry, Joe. Sorry, Joe. My girl's cool, though. All right. <laughs> um, so Joe and I, we... I knew that. Oh, uh, well. Because well, oh. uh, we have known each other for some time, Joe. From- A long time. We go... We go way we do. Back. And I got to be on your podcast and now you get to be on my podcast. And so everybody wins. This is just like full circle. Um, so. Well, I, I remember, I remember when you guys were starting this and I thought it was such a great idea. And I think it was like around the, like during the pandemic that you had first asked me to be on and, you know. You like, waited that long, Julia? 
Sorry. We've been doing this show almost seven years, Joe. I know, but I get nervous about asking Wait, people, and then I feel like I'm imposing, and then I get nervous. I get nervous. You're never imposing. Not to me. Mm-hmm. I, I'm, I'm, I was, I'm, God, I'm a little bummed that it's taken this long. <laughs> well, you're, being on Movie Crypt is one of my very fondest memories, and uh, you guys are clocking on over 500 episodes. We will get to that in a bit. But we want to start at the beginning. And we want to hear about your horror origins. Where did it all start? Where did you, this twisted persona begin? Well, you can all, you can attribute all of it to, and and please don't take this the wrong way, but you can attribute all of this to my mother, my dear, loving mother, uh, Marina. Marina. Why would we take that the wrong way? That's so sweet. Well, you know, considering that we've been talking about fucking and sex and all that stuff, and bringing my mom, I, the Oedipal, the Oedipal she, complex is in full How did swing. she make you, Joe? How did she okay. make you, Joe? You know? So, so, <laughs> Back well, on track. You know, my mom and my dad, my mom and my dad had a lot of sex, and then I popped nice. out. Um, well, maybe it was just one time. I, I don't know. Maybe, maybe it was, maybe it was more than one time. And that's why I came out as tall as I am. Cause it was like extra jizz. Um, <laughs> God, this is, this is all going so wrong. So right. Yes. Um, oh my God. But my, my horror upbringing, thanks to my mom was due to, uh, she, she was a big horror fan herself, um, as a teenager. And, uh, when I popped out, I kind of put a crimp in her movie-going uh, opportunities because now she's got this little piece of shit that she's got to take care of. Mm-hmm. Um, but it did not stop her from going to see Dawn of the Dead when it first came oh, out. No. And I was three, and oh. she couldn't find a babysitter. <laughs> and you know, she she looked on. You know, I don't know if you guys remember the poster for Dawn yeah. of the Dead, the original one. It had um, a disclaimer at the bottom, and in this like you know squared off bracket, it said you know warning. This mm-hmm. film has no sex in it, but it's got extreme violence and no one under 17 should be, you know, should be allowed in the theater. Well, I don't know what theater she went to and what maniac said, like, yeah, let a, let a little kid three-year-old go in. But my mom was like, well, it says there's no sex, so that should be fine, right? <laughs> and she took me in to go see it. And I'll never, I remember seeing it. That's the crazy part. Like, I, I remember years later seeing the film on VHS and I re- like I had one of those like total recall moments, not the movie, but like this mentally having a total recall moment of remembering scenes and seeing them with my mom in that theater. I even remember, and I swear to God, I remember watching it and going, "God, the makeup looks like shit." <laughs> and you know, and I love. And the thing is, I love Tom mm-hmm. Savini; he's my hero. But if you look very closely at that film, and you couldn't really tell until the laser disc came out and that's yeah. when I re- it really hit me. But when the laser disc came out back in the early nineties, it was the first time that you could actually see the film with a, you know, a, a greater sense of clarity and a greater and a, and a higher definition. And mm-hmm. if you look very closely, you actually, you don't have to look very closely. Sorry, Tom, throwing you under the bus here. But um, the, the moment when the Afro zombie bites his wife on the arm, you can see when like the, the skin gets pulled back, you can see where Savini stopped doing the makeup oh. because it goes from like dark to light in her skin. They didn't blend it in. Mm. I remember that shit. I remember that moment. And I think that's one of those moments that I remember as a, as a little kid going, so there's not, so zombies aren't real because the makeup would have probably extended all around. It's not like, if you're a zombie, all of a sudden you're like partial zombie because the makeup artist only did you halfway. So that's what got me fascinated with the process of, and the craft of 
making movies and that it, to me, it was all like a magic trick. So from then on, I was just fascinated with movies in general, but mainly horror movies because those were the, the greatest like special effect or actually those were like the greatest magic trick was to be able to create other worlds, other creatures, you know, werewolves, vampires, Frankenstein, slashers, whatever it was, there was a, there was a, um, a sense of wonder that, that came from all these. Now, you know, a, a very dark sense of wonder, but I was just so enamored by the process of it. So much so that my mom, to kind of help me, like, I guess, satisfy that, that craving of knowing how movies were made, but also to dissuade me from thinking that gremlins were really under my, my bed. Oh, Joe Dante, uh, Joe Dante fucked us all me. over, man, didn't yeah. he? <laughs> yeah. Well, well there's, I don't know if you guys remember this or ever recall, like there was this famous Fangoria poster or like a cover that he, that they had where it was Joe Dante on the cover and he had stripe on his shoulders. And I remember going, A, holy shit, there's a gremlin on that magazine. I want it. And B, who's the nerd who's on the cover as well? <laughs> like who the, who the fuck is that guy? And Talk about nice, nice guys in Hollywood. That guy, my God. Yeah, exactly. Well, you know, he was one of my heroes. He still is. Like I got to do his, his show a couple weeks ago and it was just trippy being like, cause we were talking about erotic thrillers and I'm like, Joe, you do realize that you had one of the sexiest horror movies for a while with yeah. howling because you had yes. never before has Robert Picardo ever been sexier. Yeah. And he's like, <laughs> he's going to, he's going to manhandle um, D Wallace stone in that. Um, uh, what was it in that porno booth? And, yep. you know, my, my wife and I just watched it again recently. And I'm like, this is a fucking a sexy movie. And I'm like, but it's from the guy who did Gremlins <laughs> in Inner Space. I, I don't yep. know. Yeah, but, what? but he worked for Roger so, Corman, right? Range. That's, that's, range, you know? Yeah. yeah. That, that's, he was one of those guys that showed me um, that, you know, even nerds can make movies. It doesn't, you know, you don't have to be some hoity-toity guy with a little beret and a big bullhorn, you know, like nerds can make movies too, which was always good. Um, but also, you know, and, and I believe the same kind of applies to Stuart Gordon, where, and I'm sure we'll talk oh, about yeah. him, but uh, all of those guys, you know, Landis and Dante and, and Stuart Gordon, for example, they were directors who could um, jump genres pretty deftly, jump tones very deftly, do, you know, kids movies. I mean, people forget, Stuart Gordon wrote Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, you know, so and that was one of the main draws for me to even see Honey, I Shrunk the Kids was like the guy from Reanimator made a Disney movie. I'm in. But that <laughs> and it's movie, a freaking great Disney movie. Yes. And it's yeah. a great Disney movie. It's also dark, mm-hmm. um, you know, and, and at one point Stuart was supposed to direct that movie, too. Could you imagine what that movie would have been like if Stuart Gordon did that movie? Like I would have been blown away by that even more. Yes. Um, yeah. They were they were the directors that showed me that like you don't need to be stuck in one genre, you don't have to be um, pigeonholed into you know one brand, and that was very influential on my own career. And you know I'm glad that I had like directors like that to show me that you know like a hard director doesn't have to just be a hard director. You can be an action director, you can be a comedy director, you know, and even in on the same token, you you know, if you're a comedy director or another genre director other than horror, you can dip your toe into that as well and maybe even really excel. So that that's that's really where all of my kind of horror upbringing there's a lot more, but I can definitely say my it was my mom and she'll be the first person to tell you that no, it wasn't me. She denies everything. <laughs> really? Like she never, 
She never admits to it. I mean, now a little bit more because I guess I can say that I, you know, like all this shit paid off a little bit. But for the longest time, she would be like, Joey, stop, tell, stop telling people that. It makes me sound like a horrible mother. I'm like, yeah, but look what happened. You know, like you, you created, you know, well, you created me for one, thank God. But, you know, you also created the spark of creativity that I'm so glad I had because I found an outlet for it. Not everybody yeah. does. But I found an outlet that was allowing me to therapeutically deal with my own fears, but also deal with it in a really creative way that has, I mean, like I can look, it's, it's always been hard for me to like look back and go like, oh my God, I've made movies and people actually watch them. Uh, but to be able to own up to that is a big thing for me um, because I've always considered myself like a fanboy first, you know, that just got kind of like, I got really lucky, but. You know, now I'm meeting people that have like grown up with my movies, which is fucking crazy. And, you know, just, just the way that I grew up watching Joe Dante movies and watching Stuart Gordon yes. movies. So You're, you, you have usurped you know, the master and, and now you have become the master. I, God. Who's so, the master? So now, wait, wait. Yeah. <laughs> Show no. Uh, by the way, uh, I, I absolutely love the last dragon it's one of my favorite like 80s movies it's oh, one of my yeah. like all-time greats and mm -hmm. uh so i what what i do is whenever i have a production if i ever get the chance to because uh, i i love bonding the crew and you know like bringing them all together making them feel like a family and everything so what we would do is we do movie nights nice. and um when i was doing this movie called point blank for netflix it was you know pretty much a straight up action movie it was my 48 hours so to speak Mm -hmm. And uh, I had such a great time working with the crew on that. Some of the cast, not so much. <laughs> um, but Anthony Mackie was, we, we, we're not going to talk about assholes, Frank Grillo. But, you know, like, it's, it's totally fine. Um, but You'd be nice or in Hollywood or this Anthony, happens. <laughs> You'd be nice. Yeah, whatever. No, people no, here, not, not know, to people that know. People know. No, I mean, that's what happens when you aren't nice is what I mean. Yeah, people find out. You find yeah. out. I usually, I don't like to poo-poo anybody, but you know what? That guy's such a fucking asshole that he deserves everything he gets. Um, so fuck him. Not not that, he, like, I'm sure he doesn't lose any sleep over me going, he's a fucking asshole. <laughs> like, he's a fucking asshole. Um, but uh, when it comes to, you know, some of the other collaborators like Marsha Gay Harden, holy shit, she's amazing. And mm -hmm. Boris McGreever, you know, I loved him in House of Cards and working with him. But Anthony Mackie is, that guy is truly a superhero full stop he is one of the nicest people i've ever worked with he was one of the most professional and hard hardest working people on the set and he was he just he appreciated the family atmosphere that i was trying to um to foster so he would come to the movie nights too because he heard about it from him. other people he's like Aww. wait you're doing movie nights too what the fuck and i'm like he's like what are you playing this you know um what are you playing this weekend and i'm like well we're probably going to start with after hours and then we're going to do last Dra uh, last dragon last dragon and I, sh I shit you not. Did he so show up dressed up? Do... No, <laughs> but he literally bamfed in because we do it. We did it at this um, this bar that would allow us to use their um, their porch as like a um, as like a screening room and stuff, and they'd have it outside mm -hmm. and everything. People would be hanging out, drinking beers, having a good time, and then he literally appeared like Nightcrawler and just boof. He just showed up and he started quoting the movie word for wow. word. Now I can also quote the quote the last dragon word for word so we had a quote off on the, yes. the whole time during the movie and like i was playing bruce, bruce leroy he was doing shown up 
And the best was, um, and I don't know if this is still true because it's been a couple of years, but I kept saying, God, how great would it be? Everyone's doing legacy sequels. Why mm-hmm. can't they do the next dragon? Why can't you take yes. like a movie like this and see what happened to Bruce Leroy? And I literally pitched him this idea on the, like right off the top of the dome. And he goes, yeah, hold on a second. Beep, boop, boop, beep, boop, boop, beep. <gasps> he goes to his phone and he goes, yeah, I just bought the right, the remake rights. I'm like, are you fucking kidding me? Holy oh. shit. <laughs> and I, I don't know if he was bullshitting me or not, but like, but the fact is like when you have a movie like that, like bring, like bring your family together, it's always a cherished movie. And I, I love doing that to, you know, with my crews, I do it with every movie that I do is I try to like, you know, make, make there be a sense of community because you know, making movies, as you guys know, is really tough. Mm-hmm. It's not an easy endeavor. If it, if it was easy, everybody would do it. And like you, you need to corral your troops and your family and make them feel like they are a significant part of the collaboration. And I do that with every movie. Like, you know, may the best idea win. You say good morning and you say good evening and good job to everybody that works on it. And you, you more times than not, they will fight for you and fight with you to make your day or to get that extra shot or to get mm-hmm. that extra take. And that means the world to me, you know, like we are blessed that we get to do what we do. So I, I never take advantage of that ever. Well, this is because you're an amazing director and you're an amazing person. You care about people and you care about making this something you're doing together. Not every director is like that. So you should know that you're a very special man. Yeah. I see. I don't get that. I, I like, I, I mean, thank but you first of all, you think you think you. Kubrick was do doing that? You think Kubrick was like bringing folks home and like having hot dogs <laughs> with him? Because no, that man was not. There would be, there would make me nothing. Nothing would make me happier than to think that there's like Kubrick is showing the Last Dragon to like his cast of Full Metal Jacket <laughs> like on a Saturday night. That would be fucking amazing. Like like sitting on the set of Full Metal Jacket, like in all the rubble and the debris, and he's going like, "Ooh, watch this part with 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 Bruce Leroy. It's great." Um, hey, you know what? You know, every every director has their own method. You know, yes. I would always hear about all these directors who would, you know, they're screamers and they would berate their crew because they think like, "Oh, tough love. Like I gotta keep them in line," or or try like funky tricks on the actors just to get a rouse out of them. I'm like, that's not me. I'm not like that. I like, I am truly grateful that every single person is there working on my film. And I think part of that comes from when you make, when you start making movies with, you know, 59 cents and a roll of duct tape and your friends and family doing it, you like, you feel like you're putting them out. Like, I know that you had other things to do. And, you know, I, 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 I'm truly grateful, you know, for you giving up your time. And then, you know, you realize like, oh, no, they were under contract and they're getting paid a hefty sum, but you're still making them feel like they're worth it. You know, because sometimes people see it as a gig and yeah. I never see it as a gig. I see it as a gift. Mm-hmm. Well, talk about where that did, where did the, the film? I mean, we, yeah. we have the horror love. Yeah. But, but, you know, we have Tom Sabini to thank because of his, he had made a mistake you wouldn't see that layer that was peeled back from movie making to want to have the interest to do it yourself. So when you first started making movies, did you go straight to horror? Uh, yeah. I mean, like, and I'll be honest, like up until that point, which is ironic that I would bring up like a mistake that Ms. Savini made that was got me interested in the craft because, you know, after that I bought uh, all of his books mm-hmm. I saw Scream Greats Volume One, uh, the Fangoria video that they made back in the day that like highlighted him. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, he just seemed like such a badass, and he was also 
an actor. And I wanted to either be an actor or a makeup effects artist at the time, or both, and be Tom Sweeney. Mm -hmm. But it wasn't until... And, you know, I, I, I've joked about this before and I, you know, people laugh when I bring up like such a uh, detailed uh, recollection, but uh, August 7th at 3.10 PM wow. at the Brookhaven Multiplex, that's when I saw Chuck Russell's The Blob. Okay. And that was the movie that changed everything for me in terms of what a director did. Because up to that point, I was reading Fangoria incessantly and I was making my own effects and I was going out on auditions, you know, in local theaters and everything. But when I realized that what a director does is a culmination of all of these things, you know, he's got his hand in the cinematography, he's got his hand in makeup effects or she, um, you know, they have, you know, they're, they're working with the cast, they're working with the editor. They're, they're, they're part of the process in every single shape and form. And that's when I, when I realized, like, I love all of those aspects, not just the, talking to actors or not just the makeup effects, but every single part of the craft that brings it all together to make a movie. And then you get to watch a movie, you know, in the theater. And a lot of times the director doesn't get to be there, but you hope and pray that you have a full house of people and every single element of the production of that film from the writing and then the casting and then the acting itself and then the cinematography the editing, the music, all of these components, especially with a horror movie, creates an effect on the audience, whether it's a laugh or especially a scream. And there's so many moments in Chuck Russell's The Blob, you know, whether it was the script that he and Darabont wrote that like threw me for a loop because I'm like, wait a second, you can't kill the the, the, the lead hero in the first 15 minutes of the movie. Or wait a second, I thought you were, we were not allowed to kill kids. And, you know, like there was all these things that really blew me the fuck away. And that's the day and that's the moment. I remember walking out of that theater and telling my mom, I want to be a director. And she's like, yeah, that's very nice, Joe. <laughs> Let's go home. Um, but, but ever since then, um, you know, being able to have that as my goal, which I know I've achieved, and I'm, I'm so grateful for that and so grateful for everyone who's helped me along with that. One of the best full circle moments, though, was um, I had met Chuck uh, at one of the masters of hard dinners, which is where I also met Stuart, but we'll get to uh -huh. that. Um, I met, Ch I, I saw Chuck at one of the masters dinners and he hadn't gone to the first couple that I had been to. Not that I ever expected him to show up, but he just showed up. And it was literally the only other time that I could imagine a similar situation was when I met my now wife, where she was like, we were both at a party and it was like, the seas parted, like people oh. literally parted and I saw her and I went near, like I, oh. I iris wiped into her. Well, the yes. same thing happened with Chuck Russell where I saw Chuck from across the room and like the world slowed down and an iris, you know, like when, remember that moment in Boogie Nights where Philip Seymour Hoffman sees Dirk Diggler for the first uh -huh. time and it goes <laughs> and then yeah. circles around him. I push, I'm pushing fucking like, Joe Dante out of the way. I'm like, get out of the way, Landis, you know, and beelined over to, to Chuck and stopped him and said, I need to thank you because I would not be here today if it wasn't for you. And he's like, uh, and uh, hi, I'm Chuck. Like, I, I just wanted to get a drink. And I'm like, Oh, I'll get a drink for you, sir. Like, and we, be and we became very, very fast friends. And, um, then now for years I had become friendly with the, um, the shout factory guys. 
And like when, once I did, and this is at a time that the blob was not in circulation anywhere. You couldn't get it on DVD. It wasn't on streaming anywhere. This was about like uh, seven or eight years ago. For a long time, the blob was kind of lost. There was an, an import Blu-ray that came out from Umbrella like years ago, but it was very hard to find. And I kept, kept like every every time I would talk to the shop factory guys, I'd be like, so how's that blob uh, reissue coming out? Or are you going to do the blob? When's the blob coming out? And they'd be like, God, Jesus Christ, Lynch, just shut the fuck up. <laughs> it got to the point where they did it because I think they wanted to shut me up. And wow. then now Chuck and I had become friendly. And um, at one point he actually, I mean, you know, not, not to be hyperbolic here, but uh, he kind of saved my life. I was um, in really dire straits financially. And he called me up one day after we had be, kind of become friendly and exchanged numbers. And I mentioned that I, um, I edited um, and I was just going through a really rough patch in my whole life and everything. And, you know, this is in between movies and I was just, I was in a bad way. And I was at a movie. I, I'll never forget. I was at Wolverine. The, uh, the No, sorry. I was at Logan. And I get, and my phone rang and I was like, oh fuck, that's me. Oh shit. I got to turn my shit off. I totally forgot. And then I look at the ID and it says Chuck Russell. And I'm like, duh, 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 duh. I ran. So I said, sorry, Logan, I got to go. I ran outside and it was Chuck. And he goes, listen, you know, I remember you saying that you knew, um, you knew editors and you were an editor yourself. I'm looking for someone that can help me out on this project that I'm doing. I'm doing like a sizzle reel for this new movie you know, do you know anybody? And I'm like, I'll do it. I'll fucking do it. I like, I would, I'll do it for no money. I didn't say that, but, mm -hmm. um, he's like, I'll pay you some money, you know, some money to help me out. And I spent about six weeks in the edit room at, um, Adam Green's production office, Aeriscope, working with pretty much the guy that changed my life. Wow. And it was such a fucking honor and watching him making these choices and everything was such a dream. And then finally, and I said, hey, you know, I'm, I've been really pushing the Shout Factory guys to make a Blu-ray of the Blob. He's like, that would be great. You know, it probably never happened because the rights are all over the place. And then about six months later, the Shout Factory guys called up and said, we got the rights. Uh -huh. And would you, would you want to do the commentary uh -huh. with Chuck and, uh, and Mark Irwin, the DP, and Tony Gardner, the, the effects artist? And it's like, if I could just go back uh -huh. to that day in 1988 and say – Hey kid, guess what? Someday you're going to be on a Blu-ray doing a director's commentary with, you know, your hero, the guy that's going to change your life. I, un unfortunately, my, the, the twelve-year-old set, set, the version of me would probably go, "A, what's a Blu-ray? Yep. And B, what's a fucking commentary? And C, get away from the old man." <laughs> um, but it it all comes full circle mm -hmm. like that, and you know, so the the Blob was definitely a pivotal moment in my life, and. You know, actually at uh, Beyond Fest, when we did the premiere of the L.A., well, yeah, I guess it was the L.A. premiere of, of Suitable Flesh, uh, Chuck showed up and it was, I, I, I saw him in the crowd and I started kind of tearing oh. up and I'm like, there's the man that changed my life. And, you know, of course, everyone around me is going, oh my God, it's Chuck Russell. Holy shit. And they're like, they totally forgot about being there for Suitable <laughs> Flesh. So I screwed myself up there a little bit. Um, but yeah, it, like that's sorry. I, I don't even know what your question was anymore. I just went off on that's, a tangent. Welcome. To that's what, no, this is no, what this is, is we want to hear the tangents. That's what we're most interested in. It was beautiful. Honestly, I'm like literally smiling. My face hurts so bad from smiling so Me big, <laughs> hearing you talk about the joy of cinema, mm -hmm. getting to work with your heroes, literally doing the things I think Julie and I talk about all the time. This is the stuff we always dream of. Like you're literally living the dream. 
Like she wants to work with Mike Flanagan. Like this would be, that would be like the moment. I feel like that oh. would happen for her, you know, like that's, you know. I had, all right. So here's, here's a fun thing. Um, so I'm a huge Mike Flanagan fan as well. And uh, Mike showed up to the, 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 the premiere of uh, Suitable Flesh to try back. No fucking way. Yeah. And, you know, and before that, um, it was like a day before I saw him at like this mixer and, uh, you know, I, I, again, huge fan of his Gerald's game. We actually have an homage to Gerald's game in Suitable Flesh. Uh, the handcuffs. handcuffs that uh, uh-huh. Ace Await uses in Suitable Flesh are the same exact ones from Gerald's game, the same model. Oh, no, cool. Um, it, it, yeah, yep. So uh, so when I told him that, he was like, well, that's kind of kinky. I don't, like, <laughs> I, I, is, that, is that a good thing? I'm like, no, no, it's a good thing, dude. It's a really good thing. And, uh, and then when he, um, afterwards, uh, I, I saw him at the, the premiere and I didn't want to like bombard him and say like, so what'd you think? You know, but he was really, really complimentary on the movie. And I was like, really kind of starstruck by him. Um, have you guys watched uh, Fall of the House of Usher yet? Not yet, but Not we're yet. excited. We're very, very excited. Oh. We just did a whole oh round of completing God. all the rest of his films for our podcast. So we just did like a Flanagan oh. round. Um, it may be, I'm only on, I'm only on episode five. Okay. And, it, mm-hmm. I, and I can already say, it's maybe my favorite Mike Flanagan project ever. Oh, wow. I've heard so many people say that I cannot wait to devour it. I I think that maybe maybe I'll do that like Halloween Day, oh. you know, and just like sit there. And it's it's, it's one of those shows that like mm-hmm. I, I like to savor long form mm-hmm. content. Like I don't, you know, I had my I had my binge era where I'd be like, all right, house yeah, yeah, cards, yeah. we're spending like, all day inside. <laughs> But after a while, you just, you know, like, it's almost like an overload. You don't get to really appreciate, especially from a filmmaking standpoint, you don't get to appreciate a lot of the little nuances mm-hmm. that, you know, the filmmakers are putting into it. And flat, like, I learned quickly through, um, uh, was it Haunting of Hill House? Is that, wait, mm-hmm. is, it, is that right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. Um, from the first one, I didn't appreciate it because I binged it all the little Easter eggs and all the fucking ghosts that are in yeah. the background. There's a lot of that, you know, in his work in general. And I kind of knew- That's why we watch this things 10 times. It's okay. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, this one, I'm not going to give anything away, but this one, watch very closely. Oh, excellent. Definitely. Yeah. And then he brings the watch different closely. actors back and he has the laser glass from Oculus and all of his stuff. Like, it makes me so happy. So- I love the fact that he's got a troop. You oh know, yeah, so cool. Anyway, I'll shut up. So I'll, I'll shut up about Flanagan. No, we. I, this is we could go on all day. I mean, you this can is, go on about Flanagan we, here. No. We're a very <laughs> Flanagan podcast. We are, but we're also a very pro Stuart Gordon podcast. So let's get into that. Yes. Now. Well, Stuart, I mean, I I wouldn't be here talking to you if uh, you know if it wasn't for Stuart in many respects, uh, not just because of suitable flesh, but. You know, uh, Stuart and his work was so important to me growing up. I mean, even now to a degree, but, um, you know, when I was a kid, I was consuming everything with, um, you know, in, in terms of horror and, you know, especially in like the, because I was growing up in the era of splatter where splatter was, you know, a, a lot of, you know, people kind of misconstrue it as just being this time where, Everybody was putting so much gore on screen, but it's more than that. It was also a tonal thing where splatter, if you look at a lot of the the kind of important films in that splatter movement, everything from, you know, Evil Dead 2 to Return of the Living Dead to Reanimator, um, 
uh, Friday the 13th part four could be, you know, uh, part of that kind of, you know, cabal of movies. There was a sense of humor to those films that um, I don't think a lot of people realized, or, I mean, they definitely do now, but um, that tonally these movies kind of balanced horror and comedy really, really well. And Reanimator was one of those movies for me where I remember seeing it as a kid and going, I don't know whether to laugh or cry or touch myself. Right now. <laughs> this is just like, there's so much going on in this and I'm, I'm, I'm a little confused, but I enjoy, I really enjoyed that. Um, and, and that, that was got what got me really excited about Stuart Gordon as a director. Then I saw from beyond same mm-hmm. thing, like, Holy crap. I never thought I'd see images like this on, on the big screen dolls, mm-hmm. Um, space truckers, you know, he, again, like we were saying before, he, you know, he wrote Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. Here is a director that proved to me that you don't get hold, you don't, you don't put baby in a corner. You don't put Stuart Gordon in a genre because he will break out of that shit. Yeah. And, um, you know, I became friendly with Stuart through, again, through the Masters of Hard Dinners, um, where the, to, to be totally fair, like anytime that we would go, Adam Green and I would joke, like, we're, we should be at the kids' table. I don't know why the <laughs> fuck we're here. And we were, we were more of the masturbators of horror than the actors <laughs> of horror. Um, which is fine, because, you know, I would just be giving handies to everybody, like, you know, around the table. Um, Landis, very, Landis has a very soft penis, I will say. Oh, God. Oh, God. Oh God. No, no, he does not. I don't know anything oh, about that. I don't want to he would, he would probably oh, tell you, though. He would probably tell you. He, he says anything, that guy. I love him. He's out of control. Yeah. No, no filter on that man. No. Um, also no underwear. Um, but anyway, so Stuart, the guys that I would, um, you know, like he, he sat next to me once and we struck up a conversation and it was such a great conversation that we just, every time we would see each other, it would be catching up with, you know, with like with old friends. And we just became really friendly with each other. And we would, you know, we would, we'd never hang out outside of that. And most of the directors didn't hang out with anybody. That's the reason why Mick did it to, to begin with, was to get all of these, you know, directors together and be able to feel like there was, again, a sense of community. And I mean, I'll always remember in that and I'll always, you know, thank Mick for including me in that. But um, the last time that I had seen Stuart um, was at one of the master's dinners and he was talking about the thing on the doorstep, which was, you know, which, what, what became suitable flash. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when he was mentioning it, I was so excited because for me, it was like, not to paraphrase a, another Landis project, but it was like the blues brothers. He was getting the band back together because he was, he had Dennis writing it and Brian was producing it. And, you know, he was talking about having um, Barbara and Jeffrey involved again. And as just as a fan you know, I'm popping a major Cinnaboner at this point. Yeah. I'm like, oh boy, oh boy, oh boy, I can't wait. <laughs> and then, unfortunately, we lost him. And, um, you know, like, so when Barbara came to me about the script, uh, which again was, it's funny how, you know, I think this happens for a lot of people, at least, you know, it seems that way. But um, just when you're at your lowest, um, you, like, you have these people come into your lives, these moments come into your life that really looking back retroactively, you know, you can see as being these pivotal moments and these changing moments in your life. And Barbara writing me uh, out of the blue, this was six weeks, in, you know, into the pandemic and about two months after we lost Stuart, um, she just emailed, kind of cold emailed me with, uh, with Dennis and said, um, you know, would you be interested in this project? And, you know, she buttered me up by saying like, you know, Stuart was, we were talking to Stuart before he died and, 
we were asking him if there was any other directors around that, um, you know, he felt would, you know, take the baton and run with it. And supposedly, you know, because I didn't hear it from his lips, so I'm going to print the legend. He said my name. No fucking uh, way. Yeah, now, no. I, can go, I can go real. I can go real dramatic and be like on his deathbed, <laughs> just like Walt Disney said Kurt Russell as his last words. You know, Stewart goes like Joe Lynch, but maybe he was actually saying David Lynch. I don't know. Um, but anyway, e- either or, that led to an email to me and the script attached, and you know, I was I was filled with both excitement and dread. Excitement because holy shit, like. I was just excited to read it because I was a fan, not even thinking like I would get the opportunity to direct it. And then, but also terrified because um, before I read it, I was like, oh my God, like, I don't want to screw this up. Like if if, if this actually happens, like there's a lot of responsibility on my shoulder. I, I, you know, like I, like as a Stuart Gordon fan, I don't want to fuck this up. Don't fuck this up, Lynch. (laughs) But then after I read it, I was nervous because I liked it. I didn't love it. Um, and, And now the reason why I didn't love it was because it was two male protagonists and, and the uh, Ace of Wade character was as and if it was female. Mm-hmm. And that didn't, that, that I, it just felt like it was an old fashioned trope. It felt like it was an old fashioned sensibility. Um, I, you know, I joke about this before too. It's like, if this was 1995, it would be Michael Douglas is one of the leads. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And no one, like in terms of sexual politics and gender politics, People don't bat a fucking eyelash when it's an older man and a younger woman in that in that situation. Not a thing. Right. But if you flipped it, and not just to check off boxes, not just to be progressive, but to do it in a way that felt dangerous again, and 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 this is almost as in in a way as a comment on how fucked up things are gender politics. Yeah, it shouldn't be dangerous that we flipped the genders and we made them two older women, and that like you know. Heather's character has a tryst with this kid, even if there wasn't body swapping involved, that that would be considered taboo. Oh, Jesus. What? Older women can't fuck? That's bullshit. You know? Totally. Like, that, that really... Julia screaming and, from the mountaintops. We were having a conversation about this like a lot, another week or two ago. Absolutely well, agree. It, it, it's true, though. And look, I, you know, I'll mm-hmm. be the first person to tell you, I, you know, I have a penis. I am a male, you know, but... I also feel like I identify, you know, from a queer sensibility. I, I like identify, you know, I, I try to tap into my, my female gaze as much as possible. And that's where I got really excited when I thought, well, what if we did flip it? And at the time I was working with my writing partner, Becca, um, and I was, you know, kind of pitching the idea back and forth. And then she wrote like an eight page document on why we should do this. And we ended up sending that to Dennis and Barbara going like, look, you might not like this, but what if, and that's what got me nervous. Cause I was like, well, that, I just blew my chance to possibly work on this movie. But then Dennis and Barbara came back and said, you know, this is really intriguing. Let's look into this further. And next thing I know, three weeks later, there's a new draft. And it's not like Dennis just went in and just like on final draft changed like Edward to Ed, uh, to Elizabeth and uh, Daniel to Daniela. It was a much deeper dive. And it was really the the first draft in many drafts of us getting deeper and deeper into a female gaze version of the story that I'm sure Lovecraft wouldn't have been thrilled with. <laughs> Good. But, yeah, fuck him. Uh, like, right, yeah. <laughs> Believe me, I, I've been having to do an apology tour for Lovecraft this entire time too. Oh, I'm sure. It was, it was, I was able to also separate the art from the artist. Of 
Yeah. And, you know, and know that like there was something really dense and intriguing and exciting. And I knew that, you know, there are fans of Lovecraft's work that from people who have absolutely no fucking clue what a bigot and a racist he was. Yeah. Um, that, you know, so that's, that's really where it all started. And that's really where I got really excited with the project. And man, I've been excited about it ever since. <laughs> yes. I think that it's cool that the movie is queer either way, right? Because it has to be. Even if there are two male protagonists, they're still going to get around to being in somebody else's body anyway. So I think that, that it yeah. starts out that way. It, ends just, that way. It, didn't, it didn't feel like I could satisfy my own like queer sensibilities if I just did it from a misogynist point of view, sure. because I think that like, just from a historical standpoint, um, just in, in movies or even in culture, um, you know, a, a, a guy and a girl, two guys and a girl, like that's a very alpha male sort of stance, especially in sexuality. Um, and I, and I, I just, I felt like that was just such an old trope and it wasn't exciting to me. And I felt like, you know, especially with gender identity and, you know, wanting to explore those things where, because if you think about it and you guys have seen the movie, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the way that I wanted to structure, and this is the reason why like her very elongated flashback looks and feels this way is that um, I wanted to give this, you know, both a female gaze, but also a queer gaze because I, I just, I wanted to buck the trend of, navel gazing and you know objectifying women when like why not objectify the guys mm-hmm. you know i've gotten some people criticizing the movie there's no nudity in this is like barely any flesh i'm like yeah because you're not looking at the right people mm-hmm. and maybe right you know for all intents and purposes maybe the movie is not directly designed for you like maybe you you want to see look if you want to see heather graham naked i have four movies that i can <laughs> in- immediately tell you go off and take a look at her tits there you know, that, I feel that's like totally there's a fun. whole website dedicated to that, right? Like, yes, like, it is. exactly. With minutes and marks, but, you're good. Yeah. Well, well I would like to say, I was really excited. Yeah. Thank you for Go putting ahead. them in their underwear, making them shirtless, because I, sh- I sure appreciated it very much. I look, I, and I will, I will not lie. I, I did broach the idea of going full frontal, and you know, like, uh, that that was met with a little more trepidation. I think we're not quite there yet, or at least my, you know, the actors in my film were not quite there yet, you know, but that's fine. You know, but I did let them know that I'm going to objectify them because in, in a way this is, this was Elizabeth's story. And the reason why it looks like an erotic thriller from the eighties and nineties is because that character probably grew up watching those types of movies and, you know, we all do this. I, I think this is just my theory, but I think we've grown up in a society now that is so ensconced in cinema as a like storytelling mechanism that even our dreams and our memories look like coverage from movies. Yep. Mm-hmm. And that, I mean, that's how I, that's how I see the world. I mean, like every, every time I make fucking cereal, it's like a goddamn Sam Raimi movie. It's like, <laughs> snap zoom, snap zoom, cereal, milk, spoon. Like that's how, that's how my brain works. Mm-hmm. And I thought like, if I'm going to, if I was Elizabeth and I was telling the story to my best friend and I'm going to tell it from my perspective, then the film is going to, the story is going to look like, uh, you know, an erotic thriller, like an Adrian Lyne film, or it's going to look like a John Dahl film, like neo-noir from the eighties or nineties. It's going to be, it's going to be a little hazy. It's going to be a little like kind of 
um, fuzzy in, ter in terms of the way that it, it, it's presented. It's also going to look less on the nudity of her and more on the fact that like you have all of these men in her life mm -hmm. that are objectified more. So, mm -hmm. I mean, that, that's part of the reason why, and maybe this goes back to more of like the queer sensibilities that I was going for, but like, that's why I wanted the dichotomy between the two characters to be like, I wanted Judah to be the twink and I wanted uh, Jonathan to be the bear, yeah. you know, yeah. and that's specifically why Jonathan does not shave his chest. Now, first off, so um, glad he didn't. I'm, so gorgeous. Very, very well, big dude, fan. Like, I've, oh and, and you know, I have never talked about this before. Um, you know, and and you know, now that they've gotten this far into the podcast, like I, you know, hopefully it's not too much of a spoiler. But I'm a pretty hairy guy, and I've had some serious issues about that in my life. I grew up where Marky Mark and Calvin Klein told me that beautifully shorn men, you know, but like like with absolutely no hair, was what women wanted. No, uh, and then and well, I thought, yeah, but that's what the media told me. And for right. years, I would shave my own chest, and and like I would feel like, well, if I, you know, if I come off looking a little burly like Yogi Bear, then I'm not going to get laid, or I'm not going to like someone's not going to think that I'm attractive. But people always and think you're attractive, until... Joe. Do you not know how attractive you are? Because holy fuck! All right, yeah, yeah. Flattery gets you everywhere. <laughs> I'm being straight from the heart, my friend. My goodness. But it, I, I didn't have. I had a, I had a lot of identity issues with that. Um, and it wasn't until, uh, my partner, now my wife, um, like we were, we were meeting up and I, at one point, I think I texted her saying like, I'm going to shave my chest now. And she's like, stop, don't do it. What, what the fuck are you doing? I'm like, what do you mean? She's like, no, I, I like, I like your chest hair. I like hairy men. I'm like, really? Are you sure? You're not just saying that. And I found out very quickly. She does, you know, she does in fact like hairy men. And then I realized like, you know what? I can embrace myself. I can be myself without having to shore, shorn the sheep, um, yeah. so to speak. Uh, and I, you know, and I, I, I have never shaved since, you know, uh, which means that like, you know, if I take my shirt off, I look like I'm wearing a fucking burlap sack. Hell yeah. Um, but, but that was also where I, like, I wanted to present because Judah is hairless. Um, mm -hmm. you know, that's just his natural body type. Um, I wanted to have a nut, like a, a dichotomy between him and uh, and Eddie, the uh, you know the quote unquote housewife at home. Mm -hmm. And you know, I thought you know because I had just worked with uh, Jonathan on Creep Show, and uh, and he was great to work with. I loved working with him. <clears throat> and again, it was my partner who was like, "Why don't you cast uh, uh, Sheck in that part?" Because the way it was written. The way the way he was Eddie was described in the script, he was kind of like a schmo. He was like a little okay. bit like you know frumpy and you know a, a real average guy. And you know what? Again, nothing wrong with that. Embrace that. But I also wanted to make it really hard for people to see like why she why would, would she go with this young guy. Yeah, when when she's straying from this perfect specimen of human being like mm -hmm. Jonathan Sheck. I mean, if you follow him in on Instagram. He does bodybuilding contests. Does he? he is zero what? body fat. He would walk, guys, he would walk around set in his underwear at all Fuck! times. Never yeah. making people feel uncomfortable, but he's just this fucking beefcake. I'm sitting there going like, holy shit, dude, I'm getting a little hotter on <laughs> yeah. crap. And at, at any time he'd be like, do I really need a shirt for the scene? I'm like, dude, you're making dinner. He's like, yeah, but do I really need a shirt? I'm like, oh no, good God. point. No, not yet. I got to save all the, I got to save all those moments, but point is is that uh you know he shaves his chest all the time and i said 
the second that I texted him that day after Becca had said, um, you know, what about Sheck? I texted him and said, hey, do you want to be in this Lovecraft movie I'm in? And you'd see the dot, 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 dot. I'm in. That was it. That, that, that was the extent of his, his, uh, his screen test, his rehearsal, his, <laughs> I mean, his audition. He was, he was in because we had such a good time working together and we were looking for something else. Mm-hmm. But when I told him what the impetus and the reason why I wanted him to play this part, because, you know, again, I, I, I wanted to have a, a, a contrast between what Judah was and what he was. And, you know, I was going for, I was using all of the film noir tropes um, or and even neo noir tropes in this, but flipping it on its head, you know. So Judah's character is technically a film, a femme fatale, but we like we we likened him to the home fatale. Oh, and, do you know, uh, do you know who um, he reminds me of? He reminds me of a young Orson Welles. Yes, very. You know what's funny? I felt the same thing. There was a documentary that that just came out called American America. Yeah, America. It's about Orson Welles and. Uh, Citizen Kane that this this filmmaker made and there's early shots of Wells uh, and I'm like oh my god it looks like yeah Judah. it totally does where did uh, you well, find I, him and I and I knew I had and that's the thing and, and he's just as talented um, hopefully he doesn't get as fat um, <laughs> but that's on him he'll still um, be gorgeous he'll still be gorgeous he'll he'll still he'll still be he'll still be dreamy as fuck <laughs> it's ridiculous um, but the uh, with Jonathan you know I wanted him to be like what Ann Archer was in fatal attraction. I wanted him to be the doting wife. I wanted him to be like in all those film noir movies, you have the femme fatale, you have the hapless protagonist that gets thrust into the situation that usually ends up being a cautionary tale. And mm-hmm. then you have the, you know, the doting wife at home that's always there, you know, whenever he needs it and is the, you know, the, the beacon of light and usually with, you know, within the darkness. And I was like, well, that's what I want Jonathan to be. And we even wrote it where, you know, he's out of a job, you know, he's, he's not getting work. Um, you know, so he, all he does is, you know, make dinner at home and, you know, and work out or whatever. Um, but I also wanted him to be, uh, Harry and man, he was so pissed at first. He's like, I can't shave. I'm like, dude, I'm telling you, it's going to trust me. It's going to be worth it. And you're going to look fucking hot. There's going to be tons of people who are going to be like, yeah, they're going to sit there and go like, shh. Check yeah. Maybe I did a few times. I think I did say that. <laughs> he, he totally embraced it, and uh, and I'm glad he did because we needed that. Like, you know, if you put them next to each other, like they were the two sides of the coin, and mm. you know, and and the thing is too with the way that Heather's telling the story, this is her idealized version of that. Mm-hmm. You know, so there's a good chance that maybe either of them never never even looked like that, but she was printing the legend in her head and telling that to her best friend. So they needed to have that stark contrast between them. And that informed not just their casting, their look, but also the look of the entire flashback. Because if I don't know if you noticed this, but the the color timing for everything before Heather tells the story and everything after, like in the padded cell and at Miskatonic and everything. It's a lot bright, not brighter, but it's um, mm-hmm. it's just like a little different in terms of the color contrast. Whereas everything in the middle, like we've gotten we've gotten a lot of criticisms for like, oh, a movie looks like a Skinamax film. I'm like, yes, exactly. Point. Point. exactly what it <laughs> not because it's not because we were being cheap as fuck or that we were you know going for anything like other than being derivative of those movies because those are the movies that she fantasized about when she was dealing with sex and dealing with her own 
gender identity when she was growing up, it had to look like that, you know? It's amazing you going so deep into this and really thinking about every point of view. So where did you find Drew Lewis? He's amazing. He was um, recommended to us uh, because we were looking far and wide. Um, you know, you always hear those stories like, we went around the globe and did like hundreds and hundreds of auditions. We didn't do that many, but we did about a hundred auditions overall where we had all these self tapes come in and from all the different agencies and everything. This was after we had Heather. So at least we had someone of, um, mm -hmm. uh, of pedigree that would, you know, at least bolster people's exposure and wanting to be in the film. Um, and Judah, and, and, we, and honestly, we couldn't find anybody that was just quite right. Cause you're not only playing one part, that character, that actor was playing at least three, yeah. sometimes yeah. more. Mm -hmm. And, you know, th this went the same for Heather and other characters too, but you know, that whoever was playing that part, we really had the most heavy lifting to do. Um, and, and that was the thing that was toughest too, because with all the self tapes, I had to watch three versions of auditions because I had to watch one as Asa, mm -hmm. one as mm -hmm. Elizabeth at certain points, and one as the, um, as the, ent the entity. So it was, it was a lot of tapes uh, and we just weren't finding the right person. And um, one of uh, some, somebody's agent, I think it was Judah's agent, like just said, you know, he's not going to read um, because sometimes actors, you know, they're too busy or, you know, they, they put enough work out that makes them offer only. Mm -hmm. um, and of course me, like me being like, who the fuck is this kid thinking he is like, <laughs> whatever, you know, but, but I remember Samara weaving. Yep. Uh, who from I the babysitter. Mayhem. And mayhem. Yes. She, she couldn't stop talking about this kid. Mm -hmm. And I, and then I went, wait a second, that's the kid from summer of 84. Fuck. You know what? He is really good. So I'm like, okay, if he's not going to read, I need a conversation. I got to just sit down with him. Even if it's over zoom, just give me a shot. And then, you know, maybe he'll read, maybe not or whatever. So just like Heather, the first time that I talked to her, I had a zoom call with him. And within 20 minutes, we were just, we fell in love with each other. Mm -hmm. We were just like, all we talked about was Richard Linklater movies nice. and John oh. Marfelli movies. And we were just nerding out the entire time. It was a two and a half hour Zoom call. Wow. Like wow. it was one of those Zoom calls where it's like, fuck, I got to start it over. Fuck, I got to yep. start it over. Fuck, I yep. got to start it over. I didn't have pro at the time. And by the end, Judah, you know, who again, you know, didn't have to read. He goes, so do you want me to read? And I go, nope, mm. I don't need you to read at all. I, I know who I want. And I don't do this often because, you know, there's a lot of politics involved. There's deals that have to be made and all that shit. Um, that was one of the first times that I said in like, quote unquote, in the room, uh, I said, you're, you're hired. Uh -huh. like, I, I don't. And then there, and, uh, and I went back to the producers and said, he's hired. And they, wait a second, you can't do that. I'm like, I just did. Yeah, I can. There's no one better. There's <laughs> absolutely no, there is no one better for this role. And we would be blessed if we got to work with him. And Judah was, um, I mean, everybody in the cast was great, but Judah uh, Jude and I really bonded, um, on that. So like myself, my partner, we were, we were out in Mississippi shooting and we had a, a little Airbnb that we would work out of cause we were working on the movie. And, um, and every Friday night, Judah would come over and we would just hang out and drink beers and just talk about movies and talk about this movie. And there were like, it was such a bonding experience. And unfortunately it's the same thing that happens all the time where it's like, if you're on a set and you're like, we're going to be best friends forever. We're going to hang out every weekend. And then life gets in the way. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, he's been too busy and we've been too busy and we haven't really had time. He actually came out for my birthday party, which was really nice. It was just three of us going bowling, which was 
a delight. I lo- I love that fucking kid so much. I would Aww. die for him. I would kill to work with him again. I like it's one of those things where I'm sure like the first time Scorsese worked with Leonardo DiCaprio and went, "Holy shit!" I like yep. not that I want to ride this kid's coattails forever, but I but like yeah. he made me he made me better. He made me a better person. Wow. Uh, he made me a better filmmaker. He made me a better director. He pushed me in all the right ways. Not like challenging, but there there is a symbiotic relationship that you have with an actor that um, doesn't come doesn't happen all the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, clearly, did not happen with Frank Grillo. Um, <laughs> but when you have those opportunities where you really connect with another actor, yeah. and you can, um, you know, like I can tell, I could tell him honestly, you know try this or try that. And he would, you know, shoot back like, what about this? And what about that? It was never negative. It was never antagonistic. It was always like, how can we make each other better? And Judah was just one of those artists that like always brought the best out in me. He brought the best out in the other actors who were in those scenes. Um, I think a lot of it, you know, and Heather did this too, but Judah, especially um, some actors take like three or four takes to get into the groove judah would always come first up like he would just bring it i had to actually tell him a couple times give it a couple takes you know like you don't have to like you don't have to shoot your wad like all in take one hold back a little bit because you know sometimes the other actors have to kind of catch up with you not in a bad way but just in a collaborative way especially Mm -hmm. when you're doing masters um but he was such a find and i again like i to me, it's the sort of thing where it's like, um, kind of like what Joe Dante would do with Dick Miller. Dick Miller! Where's Dick Miller's, where's Dick Miller's part in the next movie? Of course. For me, it's always going to be, where's the Jude, Judah Lewis part in my next movie? That's all anybody could ask for, man, right? Because wow. like when you were young, young, you were like, I want to be in Joe Dante's like cadre of people, but now you have this thing. Yeah. Now you are uh, stepping into Stuart Gordon's shoes. You have this incredible movie, uh, Lovecraft and Boy. Uh, and I am, I, I want everybody to go see it. Cause I had a fucking rad time. It was like yes. mind fuckery loveliness. Something to look out in every frame. Deliciousness. Barbara Crampton, Jesus Christ, just killing uh, it. Why is she as hot as she's ever been? Like one of, also one of the nicest people on the planet. And I adore you, Barbara Crampton. We love her. She's so fucking wonderful. And so I'm so glad she championed this and asked you to uh, direct this movie and produce this. Well, First off, I think that Barbara's got a, a, a painted portrait of herself in the attic, like Dorian Gray. I know, right? That is slowly yep. like aging because she is ageless. Like you know, it's one thing too when you see someone like in movies and you know they have uh, you know makeup on or they've had digital augmentation or what have you. Um, Barbara is just as luminescent, mm-hmm. if you will, as yep. she is on the screen in real life. Yes. Um, she also has that like million dollar smile and that, that, yeah. that like certain smile that she does in Instagram or whatever that she does in real life. And you go, Oh God, she did the best. The eyes um, that bore Barbara, into your soul. Absolutely. Yeah, with it, without makeup, Like she's been on the picket lines all summer without makeup looking fucking stunning. Yes. We love yep. her. And, and she is, um, she, you know, there, it's one thing that I remember and we, like one of my heroes is Bobcat Goldthwait. Yeah. And um, mm-hmm. you know, I grew, I grew up with Bobcat as a comedian and then, a, you know, as a filmmaker and been so, such a huge fan of his. And then um, I became friends with him like about 10 years ago and we've been friends ever since. And he's watched every one of my movies and I've watched every one of his movies Aww. and we give each other notes. And um, you know, the, 
Bobcat told me a very, very valuable lesson and it applies to Barbara in one form. And that is, you know, if, if it's not a bad thing to quit, it's not a bad thing to admit that like either opportunities are not coming your way because it's almost sadder when you become so desperate to keep, keep pushing and being, you know, like, and hustling to the point where it's like, it's not a joke, but it's just like, it's sad, you know, for yourself, you know, most importantly, it's just like, if it's not working out, it's not working out. There's nothing wrong with admitting that, um, you know, admitting defeat and admitting failure, failure is not a bad thing. If anything, it's good for the soul. And at one point in Barbara's career, when, you know, it just wasn't working out the way, you know, she intended, or just, you know, from one reason or another, the tides had turned, the pendulum swung the other way, and Barbara decided to quit, you know, she found, you know, the love of her life, and she moved up north, and she, she created the best production ever, which was her family. Um, And it wasn't until Simon Barrett and Adam Wingard called her up just on a whim, just to be like, you know, I'm sure for retro value to bring Barbara back into uh, your next. And she probably thought the same thing. It's like, yeah, this is probably a fluke. But then she, you could tell she got the spark again. Yeah. And she remembered what it was like to be creative. But on this, at this point, and you know, I can't speak for her, but from a fan standpoint, every time that we've talked about it, it, it could tell like it was on her terms this time. It was like she would be more selective on the jobs or not even the jobs. I shouldn't say jobs. They were projects to her. You know, like they were art. And she didn't need to work anymore because, you know, she had her hands in other things and she had another career and she had a family and she didn't have to, you know, be desperate anymore. Like she could be more selective, which allowed her to create more roles that were set, like tailor-made for her. And she wasn't just doing the rat race again. And she, and she got into producing too. So she had her hand in other forms of production. And all of that, I think, created this brand, the Crampton brand. <laughs> the Cram. That, that I think people know of today, the, the Brampton. Oh, that's, um, that's bad, but I like it. Or, the, or as I like to call it, the Cramptonissance. That's better, that's better. You know, the, there's the uh, Makanissance, <laughs> but then there's the Cramptonissance. Absolutely and, you know, gorgeous. And I think the, the, the genre has only gotten better because of her. I think she's given opportunities to filmmakers, not just myself, but especially other female film filmmakers, yeah. you know, that she knows. Then she's given them opportunities. She's given opportunities to people that haven't had that chance before. And she's fostered them. And she's um, always a creative force on set. And in a, in a world where most times people are screamers and, you know, there's a lot of tension on set. She cuts that shit out completely. And, she, and you can tell she truly enjoys the process and she loves the fact of what she does. And that, you know, the stakes are lower for her because she doesn't have to worry about like, Oh God, what's going to happen with the next one. Like she's the first person to tell me, like, if I never work again, I, I, I did a great job. I, I I'm proud of the work I did, yeah. but thankfully she keeps picking projects that, you know, keep her, keep the home fires burning, so to speak. And then makes her want to keep, working again well and you know? with people like um, you and people it. like her it's something where you're 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 generally nice kind people and this is what makes people want to work with you and another nice kind person you've dedicated this movie to Stuart gordon who was one of the kindest people with one of the best hugs i have ever hugged that man so we have a question that yeah. we always ask everybody who comes on yeah. we are a horror movie survival guide we always talk about the survival tips so what is the survival tip you could give us on how you survive a horror movie how would i knew this was coming to um I do listen to the show. Um, survival tips from my end is uh, it's it's kind of a 
I guess I'm stealing it and I'm, I'm curious why it hasn't been discussed more in, uh, in horror films. It's usually discussed more in mob movies and it's something that my dad would always do. And I never understood why he did it. Um, but it's always, uh, know, know the back of the wall. Mm-hmm. And, and the reason why I say that is, uh, you know, I think because I grew up watching Romero films and usually whenever you back yourself into a corner, you're pretty much done. Right. Right. Um, because there's going to be a horde of zombies who's ready to tear you to pieces. Right. Now, more times than not, a horde of zombies is a lot less likely to happen than someone that's a little more singular in, you know, as an antagonist, a slasher, a werewolf, vampire, creature from uh, a lagoon, whatever it is. Um, so if that's the case, in most horror movies, ones that I watch, you know, even ghosts, unless it's a ghost that can pass through a wall. It's to me, I think it's better to know your six. And that's the sort of thing that's like a mob mentality. My dad, who um, uh, grew up, we, we grew up in Long Island and knew a lot of mafia guys because they would come to his store. My dad customized cars. Uh, so he would have all these mobsters come in and get their whips done and get their cars modded out and everything. So he would, he would talk to a lot of them and, uh, and, and like he would have dinner with them. And a lot of times they would, deliberately ask for the corner of the table because then they wouldn't get shot in the back because they've watched way too many Godfather movies. Yep. And my dad that's was something the same. that my dad always remembered. Yeah, my dad was saying like, so back was, to the door. And and the, what's funny though is that you don't because in most cases, what's most of the best and most effective scares that happen to a hapless victim in these movies happens when someone pops up from behind. Mm-hmm. And again, unless you're a ghost more more times than not, if you have your back to the wall, at least you know your entire perimeter. And if you have to like, you know, do like a, a juke, you know, that, that, that term that I don't list, I don't watch or play sports ball at all, but I know the juke from people playing Madden, where it would be that like, that little like fake out thing that you go like, and then you'd slide around them. You can do that better if you have an antagonist coming towards you if you know that there's absolutely no way that someone's going to be, you know, behind you, that you can have full scope of perimeter. And at the very least, you got a running start. You know, they might catch you. You know, you might not be able to get out of the room directly. But at the very least, you know that, you know, like no one's going to, Jason's not going to pop up behind you with a machete or Freddie's not going to be behind you and like stick his claws. I don't know. Freddie can, Freddy can go through walls, though. I mean, let's just say that. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. I don't. <laughs> I know. That guy's the going like, wait. Oh my gosh, there's always an exception to every dang friend. rule. Every dang rule, there's an exception. Joe, I hate to cut this short, but I am. This is. We could talk to you for like ten thousand more hours. So that means you just have to come back when you have your next one. But we want it. Tell us where shows. we can find you. Where suitable flesh you can find you on the internet and all that stuff. You've been a freaking delight, and I am already very in love. And so movie crits where we can find you on the internet. And tell us where about the the podcast you do with your best friend as well. Yeah. Yes. So uh, in, in addition to all of my illustrious filmography uh, and, and all of my uh, cinematic endeavors, um, about 10 years ago, Adam Green, uh, who Woo-hoo! I've known forever, and I, one of my best friends in the world, um, he and I started uh, The Movie Crypt, which is a podcast uh, for, like on filmmakers, for filmmakers, by filmmakers. Um, and we always wanted to do it because, well, originally we did it because we were um, we were promoting our sitcom that we were on called Hollister yeah. that um, that lasted two seasons, uh, and we were doing it just as like a uh, as a promotional thing. 
And the, when we were done with that 10 weeks, the, the company that we were working with was like, you guys are really good at this. Like, why don't you continue doing it? We're like, no, no, no. Like, you know, it's like podcasting. And this was at the time, and please don't take offense at this, but like at the time it was like, well, you know, podcast is like the new teaching. It's like those who don't do teach. Mm-hmm. And then it was like those who don't do podcast. And that's not true anymore at all. Um, and you know, we've been now 10 years deep into doing yes. it. Um, and we've had everybody on, we've had heroes on, we've made new friends because of it. We have a yearly thing called the Yorkie-thon yes. where we, um, we donate like money to this, uh, Yorkie shelter because Adam owns uh, a Yorkie and, uh, and we've been kind of donating to this one shelter ever since we've I, been doing it for a good cause, but I need to be, I need to be back been, on this year. That was so much fun. Yeah, well, you're, you guys are if if you're into it, we're, we would love to have you on. We're going to do it um, yeah. December eighth, ninth, and tenth this year. We're not doing forty eight hours anymore because of health scares, and we're just getting old, so we can't uh, pull that shit off anymore. Um, <laughs> Sorry, so that's our wonderful. better our better halves our better halves have said cut that shit out. So we're I'm okay, so glad I got some sense into here. you guys. <laughs> Well, thank God. But, but ultimately it's kind of like what you guys do. You just create a conversation, mm-hmm. you know, and, and that's when we're very proud of it. And uh, yeah, and you can find me uh, online at, at the Joe Lynch. Uh, I'm stalking around Letterboxd right now, reading everyone's reviews for Suitable Flesh uh, there as well. Uh, and on Instagram and I'm posting about more movie stuff. And, and to be honest, you guys are one of my last interviews and I'm so excited that we got to end it right and I cannot wait to go to sleep. Yay! Oh, rest well, my dear friend. Rest well. Thank you so much. You can find us on the internets as well. We're a movie survival guide all over. Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, uh, Patreon, um, Teespring store. And we look forward to talking to you more. Y'all check out Suitable Flesh. Get into it. Get excited. Let it touch you. Let the arms of Cthulhu hold you. Have a wonderful week. Thank you. Thank you, Joe. <laughs> Thank you for listening. Horror Movie Survival Guide is independently produced by Terry Gamble, Julia Marchesi, and Sierra Rhine. Hey, that's me. If you would like to support the show, find us on patreon.com slash horror movie survival guide. <laughs>